1: Learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at afsp.org/talkawaythedark. Hey, I'm Curious City reporter Monica Eng, and I'm sitting here in the bar of the Burgoff Restaurant with question asker Anne Greathouse. Hi, Monica. Hey, Anne. I met Anne at this big, old German restaurant and bar because it's been open since 1898, making it one of the last remnants of Chicago's turn-of-the-century dining scene. Anne sent in a question to Curious City about spots like this.
0: Chicago is such a foodie city now, and I was wondering if around the the turn-of-the-century it was similar to that, if people sought that kind of thing out, and what they did for celebrations and nights out.
1: So Anne's basically asking if Chicago was already a foodie town a century ago. And the short answer is, heck yeah. Like today, we had a bunch of great immigrant joints in the neighborhoods. But then here in The Loop, we had this other fascinating ecosystem of restaurants. Restaurants that catered to everyone, from the low-paid typist to the wealthy tycoon. So we're going to focus in on just these Loop restaurants. And I'm going to break them down into just the six most popular types. I'll tell you what was on the plate, but also the surprising ways gender roles, racism, food fads, and even technology like the typewriter shaped Chicago's dining scene back then. See, back at the turn of the century, Chicago had like 8,000 saloons and competition was fierce. So to keep folks coming in, they started offering, get this, free lunches. With your beer, some places gave you a cooked oyster. Others offered hot soup and bread. Some even forked over free liver and onions. And people liked that liver so much that a couple of bars went broke serving it. Which kind of blew Anne's mind.
0: That's so crazy. I mean, that doesn't
2: seem like the most appetizing thing nowadays to have liver and onions. But, I mean, I guess they
0: had to get people in the door.
1: Yes, they did. And back then, liver seemed like a good way to do it. But here at the Berghoff, they had a free lunch that would stand the test of time. We've got Berghoff's brand manager, slash historian, Colleen Silk, here to tell us more about what it was like when Herman Berghoff first opened the place. Herman acquired this building in 1912. Our bar was a stand-up only bar. That's why there's that foot rail, so people would stand and put their foot up there. And we were a men's only bar until 1969. And at lunchtime, men sidled up to the bar for that famous free lunch. You could get a Berghoff beer, a dark or a light, and a corned beef sandwich for a nickel, and then a pint for a dime. Yep, you got a hot corned beef sandwich on rye with your nickel or dime beer. So why did all these saloons give away free lunch? Well, for one, it got folks in the door. But Silk says it was also a legal necessity for Berghoff, who was a new German immigrant without any clout.
0: He had to go that
1: route. He was unable to obtain just a liquor license to serve alcohol. He had to get a retail license, so he had to serve food as well. That free lunch, along with hundreds of saloons, went kaput when Prohibition hit in 1920. But while it lasted, the saloon lunch was a working man's friend. And I stress working man, because...
0: Respectable women were not seen in those saloons.
1: This is Chicago food historian Bruce Craig, and I went to him to learn about the second type of restaurant popular at the turn of the century, the low-cost ladies' lunchroom. It was a time when women were flooding the loop.
0: In the 1880s and 90s, after the invention of the typewriter, when women were considered to be uh, the best typists because they had small fingers. So it was assumed that they could manipulate typewriter keys as well.
1: At first, progressive women's groups jumped in to help them by opening so-called suffrage lunchrooms.
2: And they would be like up on a second or third floor of some of these buildings in the loop.
1: That's restaurant historian Jan Whitaker.
2: So girls and young women who worked in stores, maybe offices, would get these sort of really simple lunches.
1: Lunches like ham or tongue sandwiches with coffee and donuts or pie. The lunchrooms were also open to men, but they'd often be served a side of pro-suffrage talk with their sandwich. Eventually, these low-cost lunchrooms would give way to even bigger cheap lunch joints called cafeterias, our third type of restaurant. They kept prices low by eliminating servers. Plus, that way, customers didn't have to tip. Back in 1914, the Boulevard Cafeteria at Staten Jackson explained its philosophy in an ad that went like this.
3: That tip, which you are almost compelled to contribute, would just about pay for your entire lunch at the Boulevard Cafeteria. Don't buy a cat in a bag. See what you are getting. Allow yourself the pleasure of selecting some toothsome morsels from our large variety of meats and vegetables.
1: And so what were those toothsome morsels? They were 10-cent daily specials described in that ad like this.
3: Roast native veal with dressing. You'll think you're eating chicken. Special boulevard chop suey made of pork tenderloin, celery, and nothing else. Boulevard chicken a la king, worth 60 cents of any man's money.
1: One Chicago cafeteria chain called Thompson's had more than a dozen locations in the loop and their diners ate at what looked like one-armed school desks. They bragged in a 1911 ad about their fast, light lunches, perfect for the office worker. A Thompson's lunch won't leave you loggy and lazy and dull this afternoon. Old cafeteria menus show Southern-influenced dishes like fried cornmeal mush with maple syrup or lima beans with salt pork. But food historian Whitaker says their menus also reflected Chicago's new love of certain... Ethnic dishes. Dishes that got hot after being spotlighted in the 1893 World's Fair.
2: And those dishes were chili, spaghetti, and chop suey. Those were like the three big crossover dishes. And and so they were, you know, thoroughly Americanized.
1: And so, believe it or not, these were the hot dishes for the adventurous foodie back then. In fact, chop suey was so big that our fourth popular eatery is the chop suey house. Around 1910, Chicago had more than a dozen of them in the loop alone. Craig says there were a few reasons for that.
0: Chop suey became immensely popular in America beginning in the 1890s uh, for a couple reasons. One is it was cheap food. It was exotic for the time. So you'll see menus even into the 1930s saying exotic Cantonese food.
1: This so-called exotic food was basically bits of Pork, onion, celery, sometimes water chestnuts and mushrooms, all drowned in a bland brown sauce. But the reputation of these chop suey spots was anything but bland. Some were right outside the Vice District, and they featured music, dancing, private booths, and more. One Tribune article from 1911 warned,
3: Chinese mix sin with chop suey. Young girls with braids down their back are escorted into many of these oriental places by boys wearing their first long trousers and are being introduced to cigarette smoking, drinking, and other evils destined to make them the slave wives of Chinamen or drag them down into lives of more open shame.
1: Now that sounds like one exciting restaurant experience. But seriously, Chinese restaurants faced a ton of racism and suspicion that painted them all with a broad brush. There were union boycotts against them, city council proposals to deny them licenses, not to mention federal laws that cut Chinese immigration way down. Still, in the end, the public's love for that exotic chop suey prevailed. And Chinese restaurants are still going strong today. Yeah, I know we're here in the Midwest with no ocean in sight. But another thing Chicagoans loved back then were oysters. Oyster houses were huge in the loop. And so they are our fifth type of popular turn-of-the-century restaurant.
0: There are several reasons for it. One is the uh, settlers of Chicago came from New England and New York, where Oysters were de rigueur.
1: That's Bruce Craig again. He said that oyster houses were a step above the saloons, ladies' lunchrooms, cafeterias, and chop suey houses. And early importers had a special way of bringing them fresh to Chicago.
0: They were shipped in along the Erie Canal, down the Great Lakes, all the way to Chicago, either in sawdust barrels, because oysters will live several weeks, or they could be put in nets and dragged through the water. But oysters were absolutely the rage.
1: So the loop was swimming with these seafood joints, including the Boston Oyster House, Chicago Oyster House, and the famous Rector's Oyster House at Clark and Monroe. Still, this cheap, plentiful East Coast delicacy would not stay cheap and plentiful forever.
0: That died out during World War I, not because of the war, but because the oyster beds were so polluted that they were killed off, and the craze for oysters diminished greatly after that.
1: After World War I, you could still find some oysters and other delicacies in our sixth and final turn-of-the-century Chicago spot, the Continental Restaurant. Here, you'd find fancy people celebrating fancy occasions with a distinct European flair. Some were standalone places, like the famous Henriese on Randolph, opened by Viennese baker Philip Henricey. But a lot of them were also
2: in hotels. Hotels were like corporations. I mean, they had money. Mm -hmm. So they could hire a chef from Europe if they wanted to. That's Whitaker
1: again. And she says another hallmark of continental places was an enormous menu
2: with hundreds of dishes. And so if a person said, you know, I want X and it wasn't on the menu, they would fix it for you because the idea was to have all the standard dishes of which there were a lot.
1: Most of the stuff wasn't super different from the surf and turf you'd see at a classic steakhouse today, with a few exceptions, like wild game, croquettes, milk toast, turtle soup, and pickled lamb's tongue. But maybe the weirdest trend at the time was celery. Yeah, celery served as its own separate dish. I asked Craig why.
0: It was uh, something you, you had to chew a lot, and that supposedly according to health theories at the time, got your gastric juices going. Uh, Secondly, celery, because it had so much fiber in it, it also is thought to have healthful benefits for uh, elimination of waste.
1: And so celery, it was basically like the kale of its era. When I told all this to question asker Anne, she was fascinated by all the people and historical factors that shaped Chicago's food scene at the turn of the century. But she was bummed to hear that women had to miss out on that corned beef sandwich with the five-cent beer. So we decided to remedy that. So we're here at the Berghoff getting our beer and our corned beef sandwich. Mmm, wow. Yeah. It's so good. Five cents for a beer and a sandwich. Yeah, yeah that's pretty amazing. <laughs> All right, cheers. Cheers. Joy. I wish I could say those Burghoff bar lunches were still just five cents. Instead, the combo goes for about 20 bucks today. But hey, now it's available to us working gals, too. You know, before we head back to our typing. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation. I'm Monica Eng. Oh, and one more thing. For those of you paying close attention to Curious City in the last nine months, you may have heard Jessica Popovac's voice and her name in the credits as an editor. She's a fabulous reporter, producer, editor, and has been filling in for our editor, Alexandra Solomon. Her energy, humor, and tenacity was key to so many Curious City stories in the last year, notably Nikki's and the Big Baby and our coverage of the 1919 race riots. And we have a feeling you'll be hearing her again on Curious City before too long. And you should check out the investigative podcast Alexandra's been working on all this time, Season 2 of Motive. It's an important story of several women who say they were assaulted by the same man while studying abroad. Find Motive wherever you get your podcasts or at WBEZ.org. Next time on Curious City. Kevin grew up singing this song, which he thought was inspired by the Great Chicago Fire.
3: Mrs. O'Leary left a lantern in the shed, and when the cow kicked it over, she winked her eyes. But
1: then he heard a marching band play it in Kansas and learned the song had nothing to do with the fire. The story of a hot time in the old town. That's next time on WBEZ's Curious City.
3: Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.